Well, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know we're in a series called Acceptable Addictions. And the idea here is that some sins and some attitudes, some behaviors and some patterns of thought, some ways that we know that we shouldn't be living, we still do, even though they're contrary to God's desire, even though they're contrary to his heart. But because of our culture, because of our personalities, we still accept them in our daily lives. We tolerate them, we justify them as acceptable and sometimes even respectable. These are the sins we don't talk about, we don't address, we do not confront. We don't think they're that bad, so we don't pay attention to them. These are the sins that all kind of get a hall pass in our lives. And the question is, why? Why do we let some sins go? And I think the answer is because we think in our hearts, really, there are two types of sin in this world. There's a really, really big sins. You know, it's kind of like a massive coronary. If you get one of these, you're going to die and it's going to be really bad. Yeah? We have our lists. Murder, right? If you kill somebody, that's pretty bad. That's cut and dry. But there are other things like lying, stealing, adultery, homosexuality, violence, and drunkenness, and so on. But then we have these other, thin, other sins. They're more like a pulled hamstring. They're mildly disturbing, but they won't kill you. And the truth is, we all have pet sins. It's in our nature, and it has a lot to do with our personality and our identity, who we are, how we define who we are. And we have to constantly guard against them, otherwise they will creep back into our lives and they will always, always be over us. For some of you, maybe it is the control thing or ingratitude or pride or anger, or maybe you get offended very easily. My pet sin is my critical spirit. It is in my personality. It is in my nature. And what's hard about stuff like this is that sometimes I think it's okay and maybe even an asset. And there's a difference between being a critical thinker, which is the positive side of my personality, but if I'm not careful, the critical spirit comes back in and it creeps and I start judging others, and basically what happens is I start thinking all my ideas are better than everybody else's, and to put it bluntly, I think that I'm the smartest person in the room, right? I hesitated to share with you this this morning because I was anticipating those of you that know me real, real well to laugh or say a sarcastic amen because <laughs> I'm anything but a smart man. On my good days, I know just how unsmart I am. I tend to be quiet in my nature. I don't open up my mouth because if you are quiet, then everybody just assumes, you know, maybe there's something going on up inside. But it is my pet sin. It is my acceptable addiction. I have a critical spirit. And there is triumph. It is beatable. But only if it is not ignored. It is a sin. It does hurt people. And everyone has got some acceptable addiction. Everyone. Here's the thing. When the Bible starts talking about sin, they're not big sins, they're not small sins. There is no such distinction. In James chapter 1, it says, Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So in this way, 
These acceptable addictions are more insidious, more dangerous than the major coronary sins, so we better pay attention. And the acceptable addiction we're going to talk about today is greed. It's everyone's favorite topic, right? Everybody's getting really pumped up. We're ready to go. And I know what is happening this morning, right? I got the introduction. It's the perfect setup. Why did you guys ask me to preach about greed? Do you feel like you guys are getting set up? As I was preparing, I felt like I had to open with a real heartfelt apology because not only is this a difficult topic to hear about, but the context in which you will be listening to this message could make you cringe a little bit more. I mean, our context is perfect this morning. I'm the missionary from Outer Mongolia who has gone to work in a third world developing country who has focused the bulk of our ministry on equal rights for the poor. And here I come back to North America, one of the most affluent countries on the face of the earth where consumerism could be defined as normal, preaching on everybody's favorite topic. And I anticipate everybody was going to moan and cringe and feel really bad because you're going to expect me just to blast you, right? Just hold no punches and just come really at you, go for the throat. And I felt really bad. I felt really sorry for you all. I really did. <laughs> Initially. <laughs> then I thought, wait a minute, you guys are setting me up. Not only is this a tough topic to hear about, it's a tough topic to preach about. So if anybody should apologize, it should be all, you all to me. I had to be extra thoughtful, right? And I already told you I'm not that smart. And then I went further and I said, this is my chance. So buckle up because it is going to be a bumpy ride and I am going to blast you because it did occur to me that this is my opportunity. By the time I'm done with everybody this morning, the checkbooks are going to be open, the pens are going to be writing, the ink's going to be flowing, and all I have to do is decide which building project I want to do next in Outer Mongolia, right? And I'm thinking spa, right? Because at my age, you have to start taking the facial treatments seriously. <laughs> Let's define what we're talking about this morning, okay? Greed is an excessive desire to acquire or possess more than one needs or deserves, especially with respect to material wealth. And I'm going to add one component to this, worry. Because for me personally, I have worried about my possessions, my acquisitions, way too much. Let's clarify for a moment before we go any further. Can you own a nice car? Is that what we're talking about? Can you own a nice car? Absolutely. Can you have a nice house with lots of nice stuff? Sure. Is it good to send your kids to the best school so they can get a good job and get all the same nice stuff? That's one of the things being a parent is all about, protecting your family. What we're talking about today is not that. It's an attitude. We are talking about our hearts. And I'll say this, living where we do and living how we live, we have to ask ourselves at least the question, are we greedy? There's one thing I've discovered in my faith journey. If there's no tension, if we're quite convinced we are okay and right and spiritually good and just, then not always, but most likely, when we start thinking like that, there is a problem. For me, personally... When I do not live in submissive gratitude, that's when I fall. We are sinners. And once we stop feeling like sinners, we will fail. Tension in our faith is a good thing. 
It propels us into action. It moves us forward. It takes us deeper. Self-reflection and constantly asking the probing questions should be part of our faith. So this morning, the goal is not to conclusively define greed and all its ugly components or even walk away from this time of worship feeling horribly about ourselves, but to be aware at least of the question, to be open to God searching our lives and then, if necessary, giving this over to him. Because I believe we would be remiss, we would be absolute fools if we thought as a church we could, not, we could live faithful Christian lives without thinking about this, without talking about this, without wrestling with this. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Are you ready to rumble? All right. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10. The, the rich young ruler, the rich young man. Beginning in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I'm going to continue on. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields and them uh, persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many... Who are the first will be last, and the last will be first. There's a hidden truth to greed. And I think the first thing we see in God's word as we look at this uh, uh, rich young ruler, the first thing we see is the incredible, incredible sneakiness and prevalence of greed. What makes greed so dangerously influential is its ability to hide from you, to blind you spiritually, to deceive you into thinking it's not there and have a grip on your soul without you even noticing it. And what is fascinating, what's completely surprising about this text, is who Jesus rejects because of greed. In Mark, we meet a man who's a lot like us. For one thing, he's clearly been on the part of the spiritual journey where here he has discovered faith. He's not only woken up to the reality of God in the universe but he's come to the belief that Jesus can lead him into a deeper encounter with this God. And verse 17 says that Jesus started on his way. This man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Talk about someone on an intentional journey. 
Here's a person who's willing to put on his running shoes to follow Jesus, but not as he, only is he willing to run after Jesus, he's willing to fall on his knees, humbly submissive before Jesus, hoping to find the riches of spiritual life. It turns out, however, that this man has moved even further along the spiritual journey than just discovering faith. He has spent considerable time nurturing the faith. In verse 19, we see that the young man knows the commandments. He's apparently gone to a lot of worship services, a lot of Bible studies. He has memorized the scriptures and practiced the prayers. He has mastered the core beliefs, the disciplines, the group commitments. And it's not just head knowledge for him. Teacher, he, can, he declares in verse 20, all these commandments I've kept since I was a boy. He's discovered faith. He's nurtured faith. He's acting out in his faith. But he realizes that something is still missing. Maybe some things aren't working out for him as he planned. Maybe he discovered that being faithful doesn't protect him or the people he loves from agonizing pain and loss. Maybe once he cried out for answers and the answers didn't come. Whatever the case is, here he clearly wants more. How do I break through this wall that I've run, run into? How do I cross over into that deeper, greater, everlasting kind of life that I know is there? And he puts it this way in verse 17, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 21 tells us that Jesus looks at this young man and he loved him. Then he says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. How's the young man respond? Verse 22, at this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus then looks around to his disciples. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples are amazed. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And there's a commentary here on life. The saddest thing in the world is someone who clings to the world's concept of wealth and in doing so misses the great treasure of heaven. In our passage, Jesus says in so many words, in every circumstance, in every opportunity, rejoice and give it to me. Rejoice when life gives you an opportunity to crucify the old self. Whatever that is that keeps you focused on you instead of me, what Jesus says, get rid of it. Give it away to people who might actually need it. For then you'll be able to come and follow me. Let's go back to verse 26. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. The wealthy young man says, it is too hard, I can't accept it, so he walks away. Jesus is clearly calling into question his salvation. Clearly calling into question whether he has eternal life because the minute he walks away, Jesus says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? So it seems like this man has failed. It seems like the rich young man has blown it. And what do the disciples say in response? They're shocked. They're amazed. They say, if he can't get into heaven, then who in the world can? And that's telling. That tells us something profound about this young man because here's a man who's not only rich in possessions, he was rich in morality. Here's a guy that if he was sitting right next to you, you would be thinking good things about him. If he attended our church, he would be involved. 
Bible studies, short-term trips, attending every Sunday, saying all the right things. But more than that, he would probably be a leader in our church. He'd be leading the Bible studies and the trips and helping us decide directional and missional things for our church. He'd be a guy we'd be listening to and respecting his opinion. Here's this well-to-do, successful, educated, moral-giving professional with great social standing. He'd be a leader in our church. He's out. He's a really good guy, and he's out. That's the hidden truth of greed, how it can completely blind you to spiritual reality. You can be religious, moral, good, virtuous, and follow all the rules and still lose your soul to money and possessions without even noticing it. The hidden truth of greed. Nobody thinks they're greedy. Nobody, right? Why? I think for me, I always compare. When you start making comparisons between your faith and others, it gets a little bit sticky. But if I compare in this area what other people have, then I start thinking, hey, I'm okay, no problem. Because I can always name some people that have more than me. I always feel pretty middle class, and I think that's a true thing for a lot of people. It's easy for us to point the finger at others, particularly in this area, because we measure greed by what we have. And we can always find someone in our immediate family, our extended family, at work, our friends, or the person sitting right next to us this morning that has more than us. So we think to ourselves, they have to think about greed. Not me. I am middle class. But regardless of where you fit on this wealth strata, this attitude slides with your gains and losses, and it will fall you the entirety of your life because it's a focus on yourself and a judgment of others. It's the wrong attitude, but that's the foundation. That's why no one really thinks they're greedy. About three years ago, my wife brought this book to me and said, you have to read this. It's amazing. The book is called Seven. And the premise is that the American life can be excessive, to say the least. It was written by Jen Hatmaker. She's a pastor's wife. And it talks about uh, what she did with her husband and children. They took seven months, identified seven areas of excess, and made seven simple choices to fight back against, in her words, the modern-day diseases of greed, materialism, and overindulgence. So food, clothes, spending, media, possessions, waste, stress, they would spend 30 days on each topic... Boiling it down to the number seven. Only eat seven foods. Wear seven articles of clothing and spend money in seven places. Eliminate the use of seven media types. Give away seven things each day for one month. Adopt seven green habits and observe seven sacred pauses. My initial reaction when my wife brought this book to me and recommended that we start implementing some of these things was... Are you crazy? We are missionaries in Outer Mongolia. I gave my daughter a Snickers bar for Christmas because there was nothing else to buy, and that's such a treat. A Snickers bar. And this particular Christmas I'm thinking about, my wife had found a can of root beer in one of the stores and was so excited because one of our teammates at the time loved root beer. What a perfect Christmas gift. A can of root beer. But it doesn't end there. We stored that root beer in our kitchen cabinet, and one night 
I did not get up to stoke the fire in the middle of the night, and that can of root beer got so cold in our cabin that that can of root beer exploded. Are you kidding me? I am living seven. I am seven. Okay, kids, we don't have that can of root beer to give for Christmas, so let's do the next best thing. Get out the cans and draw a picture of Aunt Becca, our teammate, drinking that can of root beer. But make sure to draw her on the beach drinking that can, yeah? Warmer days. Merry Christmas, yeah? It's a compare thing. It's a comparison in my heart, right? I'm looking at others. But here's what happened about a year later. We were beginning the clinic project in Mongolia, and we brought the Mongolians over to America for a couple weeks. Our Mongolian leadership saw how we were living here in North America, and each one of them separately and individually, with a little bit of awe, said to me these words, Wow, George, you are rich. It ne- I never thought of myself as rich before, but in that moment I couldn't deny it. I haven't been able to deny it since. It's telling. I think... As North Americans, we've lost a little bit of perspective. When the rest of the world looks in on our little bubble, do we realize how ridiculous we sound when we walk around saying, we're not rich, we're not materialistic, we're not greedy, I need this. The world looks in and says, you need it? Really? Let's be honest here just for a minute. Let's look at what we're spending on ourselves. Let's take an inventory of how much we're spending on ourselves to chase the American dream, and then let's ask the question, do we have an excess desire to acquire or possess more than we need or deserve, especially in respect to material wealth? And I'm going to tell you something to break it up here a little bit, something that's kind of silly. But this last week I asked myself this question, do I really need this? I have a laptop. It's about five years old. It's not as fast as it used to be, and it's not that glamorous. I don't have the good apps. I mean, I'm running Windows 7. Come on. This last week, there was a new deal on a laptop for $239. And you know what my first reaction was? The very first reaction was, where are my car keys? Yeah? I was ready. I was ready to go. And then I thought to myself, you know, whether you agree with everything in 7 or not, it begs the question, are we denying ourselves anything? Yeah? Do we really need this? And I thought to myself, do I really need this new computer? Do I really? Especially this week when on Sunday I'm preaching on greed. (laughs) You know? Kind of funny, but kind of true, yeah? So I came to the conclusion that I'm going to wait until after Sunday, after I finished (laughs) preaching on this difficult topic tomorrow, yeah? I joke, but if Jesus warns us more about the dangers of greed and money than almost anything else in Scripture, and if no one thinks they're guilty of it, that means that lots and lots of us here are just kidding ourselves. We're just deceiving ourselves. And therefore, the only responsible way to respond to this teaching, to this text, is if all of us in this room just assume that this is a problem for us. It is a problem for me. It's a problem for you. We just begin with the working hypothesis that we are all, all of us, too concerned about, too in love with, too worried about wealth and possessions, and that we are all in the grip of greed right now. The lie of greed. The reason why greed and money are so dangerous 
is because wealth, more than any other thing, I think, can imitate God for you in your life. It can replace God for you. It can provide for you. It can give you a sense of security. Wealth can give you a sense of identity and value and a sense of worth. It can cover your flaws. It's validating. You know, how can I be this bad guy if I am so successful by the world's standards? It gives us a sense of righteousness. Wealth can mimic God in a way other things can't. Do you remember the original question of the rich young man? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He believed Jesus had the keys to eternal life. He believed it. Jesus gives him the answer. He says, here is the key to inherit eternal life. So the rich young ruler had a choice. On the one hand, he had eternal life with Jesus. On the other thing, other hand, he had all his earthly possessions fleeting temporary. And this wealthy, moral, good, religious man chose his stuff over God. He walked away because he had great stuff. And he believed in the deep recesses of his heart it could give him more approval, more status, more security, and more identity than God himself. And that is the warning. That's the warning all throughout Scripture that the more money you have, if it goes unchecked in your heart, the more it will seduce you into believing the lie that you can have your heart's desire. The more that you believe that lie, the more money will enslave you. And this young man walked away with all his great stuff, and that great stuff actually owned him. It was his center. It was his idol. It was his God. It was his identity. It was his name. That's the danger of wealth and greed. How do we break free? Well, as we read, we get the answer in verse 29 and 30. When Peter says to Jesus, we left everything. We left our treasure to follow you. And Jesus says back to him, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much as this in the present age to come eternal life. When you know deep down in here that Jesus is your ultimate treasure, that he paid the ultimate price for you, when you know that in him is the only approval that matters, that in him is the only security that matters, that in him is the only status that matters, that in him is life, and in him alone is life, when you know in him you have incomparable riches, the scripture says you will have a treasure that will not fade away and cannot be destroyed. But I know this is a lot harder than it sounds, yeah? How does Jesus become our treasure? It's one thing to get up here and talk a bunch of jargon, right? Keep on keeping on, treasure up. But how do I live? I don't care about the why questions too much anymore. I've accepted them. I know who I am. What I care about most are the how questions. How should I live today? How is Jesus my treasure today? For me personally, humility, compassion, death to self, that's all I know. When I'm not living with these three tenets in my daily life, when I'm not thinking about these and praying for these, something else creeps in in this area. And what creeps in? And I think this goes right to the heart of greed, to the attitude that I have to guard against in this area. Here it is. Here's why I falsely believe. I believe that God should bless me because I'm good and that I follow him. 
Some of us believe that, right? We've heard the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. We've heard that and we believe it. But that's why when disappointment comes, when suffering comes, when tragedy strikes, we're so shocked. We're so angry and we say, God, how could you let this happen? I've been good to you. I've obeyed you. I've paid my dues. You owe me. In an essay on prayer, C.S. Lewis suggested that God treats new Christians with a kind tenderness. Like a parent would do with a newborn. Newborn. He quotes, he quotes an experienced Christian who says this, I've seen many striking answers to prayer, and more than one I thought miraculous, but they are usually at the beginning of conversion. As the Christian proceeds, they tend to be rarer. The refusals, too, are not only more frequent, they become more unmistakable, more emphatic. Our belief, our sense of justice and good-doing paradigms show our nature. We believe that the Christian life should be getting easier instead of getting harder. But, as Lewis pointed out, the New Testament gives strong examples of unanswered prayer. Jesus Christ prayed three times, Take this cup from me, Father. Paul begged God to cure the thorn in his flesh. And Lewis asked this question, does God then forsake those who serve him best? Well, the best of all of us, after he was tortured and near death, cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When God became man, that man of all others is least comforted by the Father during his greatest need. There's a mystery here that few of us dare explore. Lewis goes on to say, little people like you and me, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, we had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate outposts in the great battle. If you do not accept my premise that we're all greedy and need to be on guard and watch out, then at the least, the very least, we can see the need to ask the question, is this a problem for me? And we're going to conclude this morning with kind of a litmus for all these acceptable addictions. If there's the slightest doubt, the smallest question, I would encourage you to pray two prayers. The first, God search me. Aim the searchlight of your brilliant holiness on the inner recesses of my soul and expose whatever is down there that ought not to be there anymore. God, search me. David prayed in Psalm 139. He prayed this way. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious or wayward thoughts. See if there are any sinful ways in me and lead me out of that into everlasting way. And then in the psalm, David begins... He's reflecting on the greatness and grandeur of God, and it's really beautiful. But as he continues on, all of a sudden it strikes David that there are these people walking around, shaking their fists at this great God, resisting God, and David gets angry. He's like, how can anyone have rebellion against you, God? You're so great. And after he registers those thoughts, he stops a second time and immediately turns direction. He's like, oh no, wait a minute. God, search me, O oh God. Look inside me because maybe there's a little fist shaking going on inside me. 
Maybe there's a little rebellion inside of me. It's back to our attitude. All these acceptable addictions are about our attitude, about our hearts. And if we let a sin creep in and become part of our culture and part of our personality, part of our identity, it's going to be extremely hard to break, mainly because we don't see it. My critical spirit is part of me in this fallen world. I have to pray regularly for God to reveal it to me. Greed, at the very least, is part of our culture. We have to be willing to pray this prayer. Search me, O God. Turn the spotlight on me. Search me. Know my heart and expose any waywardness inside me. The second prayer to follow this up, because if you do pray this prayer, God is going to reveal something. It's going to happen. It takes humility to pray that prayer. The second prayer, break me. I think we have two worldviews are clashing when we talk about greed. The reality of our lived experience and the truth of the word of God. In continental philosophy, we talk about the difference between the true and the real. Are our lives real but not true? If the Bible tells us that sin is a greed and we can at the very least accept that culturally we have the sin, then how do we pray this prayer? Because part of the break me prayer is a call to repentance. How do we repent if we don't feel like repenting? How do you pray break me and repent for a sin that does not feel like a sin? This prayer requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. It doesn't take much just a willingness to even pray this prayer. But here's another truth here. For us, for many of us, I would say the mass majority of us, maybe even all of us, intimacy with anything is a terrifying prospect. Obedience comes before understanding. Stick with me for a second. In John 17, in verse 17, which is one of my favorite passages, it talks, if anyone's willing to do God's will, he will know of that teaching, whether it's from God or whether I speak from myself. There's a difference between my feelings and action. Wanting to do God's will is where I fail over and over and over again. Wanting to understand is a theoretical statement. Willing to do his will takes action. Jesus wants all our loyalties under submission to him. He wants us to identify ourselves, to call ourselves by name, in his name, for us. Our feelings of greed or any of these acceptable addictions are familiar, comfortable, recognizable, and the truth is is that we are reluctant to give them up and to be broken to them. We give up the right to ourselves taking up his cross. Once you start to obey God in your heart and in your life, once you pray, search me, break me, and repent, and take measurable action slowly but steadily, your feelings will start to change. My critical spirit, the sin of greed, whether cultural or individual, are sins of identity. And if, and you do not repent for sins of identity once and you're done. Sins of identity have multiple dimensions, are complex, and are lifelong. I don't just confess my critical spirit one time and I'm good. It's over and over and over again. Show me, God. Break me of it. For many of us, pride informs our decision-making The unwillingness to forgive landlocks our hearts and bitterness, and greed 
will almost always lead us to other treasures. It will destroy the potential of Jesus being our one and only, of true discipleship, of the willingness to give with no regret, but more importantly, to give him our entire life with no hesitation, with no regret, no reserve. And here's the punchline. You want to hear the payoff? Do you want joy, that complete, transparent, beautiful joy? The more you surrender, the greater the joy. This doesn't contradict what C.S. Lewis said. Maybe your prayers for earthly things will not be answered. That is true. This is the part of the tension of our faith, the counterintuitive part. The cup wasn't removed from Christ, but the joy came out of complete obedience and reunion with the Father. And Paul didn't have the thorn removed, but he's able to write from prison that he had joy. He had joy because even though he was locked up, he was free. In those outposts that Lewis described, you are not abandoned. Just the opposite. You are closer to your Savior. The more you surrender, the more you get of Jesus. That's our joy. That's heaven. That's union with Christ. And that's why we're telling others about him. That's why we grow in our faith to know and have more of Christ. That's completion. That's freedom. That's joy. That's the point. That's what people mean when they talk about the heart. It's our attitude. It's knowing nothing we have is ours and we are grateful. In this context, the opposite of greed is gratitude. Knowing that you're part of something completely bigger than yourself, knowing you have no control, that's freedom. No pride, that's joy. We didn't always succeed in Mongolia. We built a school that was hard. We built a clinic, it was hard. There were times when it looked like both these projects would fail and I'm convinced that when they came to the brink it was because there was too much of me in it. And I had to, I had to start giving everything back to God. God, this is yours. Take it from me. And it wasn't until I did that that things started to turn around. From the school now, there are opportunities for students who could never study before to study more than high school, but at the best universities around the world. The relief work that we have done, and now the clinic has saved lives, has broken a cycle of poverty. And the government wholly endorses what we do, even though there's a mandate from immigration to eliminate all Christian NGOs, all Christian nonprofits, all missionaries. Parliament has taken our NGO to the national level, and we are affecting policy for how Mongolian public agencies deal with the West. And part of the curriculum we helped develop is being taught in the state schools. Schools are post-socialist, meaning atheism and evolution. And in this context, Jesus is being taught as an historical figure. And creation is being taught alongside evolution. And I share this with you this morning because I had to give everything up. If I was in it, it would have never happened. It was bigger than me. There's no way that we could have done it. It's all God, and I'm grateful. When we went to Sukhbada, there was no church, and the process was slow. But God brought compassionate, humble Mongolians to lead the church, and when they took over leadership of the church, it exploded. A Mongolian leader wrote to me this spring and told me that this Easter, there were 120 Mongolians in church singing, Glory, glory, hallelujah, my God reigns. And it's not just this church plant. The Mongolians are now the missionaries, and it's an Acts 19 movement, and they're spreading it out through the province. That's my joy. Jesus held me in a very tender way when it looked like everything was going to collapse. I know his love. Jesus brought people from this church and others to support us and to carry us. I know his love. 
I have experienced it firsthand, but I wouldn't have experienced it if I didn't give it back to him. I'm a beautiful child of God, and I'm free. I am free, and I'm eternally grateful. Nothing I am or own or am a part of is mine. It's yours, God. Thank you. I love you. You are my joy. Thank you for the privilege of being able to serve your kingdom in this really cool way. Paul lays out a theology of resurrection for the believer, and this is our joy when Paul says these words. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. It's never a waste. May you hold nothing back, surrendering everything over to God, surrendering your life over to God. May you experience joy of falling into his everlasting arms. May you follow him wherever he'll lead you, through mountaintops of glory or the dark valleys of the shadow of death, knowing whatever happens, he's enough. His grace is sufficient for you. In times of darkness, may you experience a sweeter sense of his nearness and his strength and his peace and his comfort and love. And after you make that decision, may you put your hand to the plow and never look back Hold no regrets because you know as a Christ follower, things of this life will never be taken away. The bad things of this life will turn out to good and the best things are yet to come. Let me tell you, Wyzetta, people of God, you have no idea what you can be. You have no idea of the greatness God has in store for you because if you, because you have no idea of the kind of faith and power and courage that reside inside of all of us because God placed it in there. You have no idea until you're willing to say, I'm going to fall to the ground and die. I'm going to take the hands, the controls off my life, and I'm going to give it to you, God. I'm going to follow you, God. No matter where you lead me, I'm going to give you everything because you are enough. You are my hope, and there's nothing that I give to you that is wasted, nothing. When you know that, when you believe that, when you trust that, Jesus will become your treasure. And you can find you make a lot of money, and I really hope you do. But money over you will have no dominion. And you will have a lot of it coming into your hands and a lot of it will leave and people of the world will look at you and be just perplexed at your radical generosity. And when Jesus comes to you and whenever he says to you, give it away, give it to the poor, give it to those who need it, and then come and follow me, your response without hesitation, without regret will be, I will. Thank you.